Dr. Doug McGuff is a family man who successfully combines a highly intense career as an ER physician with a passion for high-intensity exercise. He's a longtime strength training enthusiast and advocate. He has written four books on exercise, including co-authoring the best-selling book, Body by Science, which is one of the most phenomenal books I've ever read on, on, on exercise. It was a total game-changer and paradigm shift for me. Uh, a, a fifth book, The Primal Prescription, deals details how to navigate the modern healthcare system and, when possible, how to avoid it altogether. This is an ER physician talking, by the way. And so for over 20 years, Dr. McGuff has also operated the ultimate exercise personal training facility there in Seneca, South Carolina, helping enthusiasts from all over the globe reach their peak physical condition. Now, after reading Body by Science, Dr. McGuff re recommends a high-intensity form of resistance training, especially for those 40 years old, over, 40 years old and over and older. In his book, he takes you through an abbreviated version of medical school on the chemical process of adaptation the muscles go through when it's put under tremendous stress. He argues that slow, steady-state cardio is actually worthless. And he says the heart does not support your muscle tissue. Rather, it's your muscle tissue that supports the heart. And he backs this up with many control group studies that provide evidence for this. So, it's muscle tissue that supports optimal heart health, along with good nutrition, of course. And his recommended exercise method is lifting heavy weights with slow repetitions, about three sets each, reaching failure each time. And he says the real magic happens when you keep pushing past the failure state. In other words, you keep pushing another five to ten seconds, even though you cannot lift the weight anymore. He says that's where the magic happens and your muscles break down past the threshold to where when you're in a resting state, you actually gain more strength, more agility, and more flexibility. And he also advocated for a minimum seven days rest after these high-intensity workouts. So it's not the training itself that makes you stronger. It's actually the rest period that does. In fact, he believes that the entire workout should only take about 15 to 20 minutes with four basic exercises, push, pull, push, pull. This philosophy is not new. There was a man by the name of Arthur Jones who founded Nautilus. Anybody ever hear of Nautilus? It's a strength training equipment. He's considered to be the godfather of high-intensity training. Uh, bodybuilder Mike Mincer back in the 1970s also carried this same philosophy. Training had to be really intense, but infrequent. And as a result, Mike Mincer won many building body, uh, bodybuilding competitions throughout the 70s and 80s, even beating out Arnold Schwarzenegger in a couple of those. In fact, in the, in the 1980 Mr. Olympia, he attained a perfect score of 300. So with a philosophy that bucked the trend of its day, bodybuilders were working out more, but Mincer, Mincer was actually working out less with more intensity and greater lengths of rest, seeing greater results. Now, why do we bring this all this up? What does this have to do with Matthew chapter 7, verse 11? What's the point? What does exercise have to do with this section of scripture we'll look at? Well, in the same way high-intensity 
uh, persistent exercise builds up strength and muscle tissue, so high-intensity prayer builds up our muscles of faith. You see, your faith is a muscle that has to be exercised. Otherwise, your spiritual life in Christ will atrophy. So here Jesus is leading us to a more persistent, healthy, more beneficial prayer life with the end result being a stronger relationship with him. So you see this way of developing strong, this is his way of developing strong, dependent followers of him. So if you're striving in prayer and you haven't gotten an answer for the life that you've wanted, then be encouraged. God is working in and through your persistence. You struggle, teaching you the things and blessing you in ways you otherwise wouldn't without a struggle in prayer. So you see, the thing you're praying for isn't happening because he wants much more for you than you want for yourself. You see, if he simply granted you your request, you wouldn't experience Christ at a deeper level. You wouldn't know his nature and character. You wouldn't be blessed beyond what you could imagine or think. You see, it's in the struggle in prayer that your strength is built, not in the receiving. He loves you too much to make it easy for you because your faith to him is more precious than gold. In fact, Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 1, 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, Though it's tested by, by fire, may be found it to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So in Matthew chapter 6, 9 through 13, Jesus teaches us what to pray by giving us a model prayer that focuses on God and his kingdom. But now Jesus is showing us how to pray persistently, with intensity, how to persevere in prayer, how to relate in prayer, and how to to trust him in prayer. So with that, look at verses seven and eight. Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who, op- uh, to the one who knocks, it will be open. Jesus commands us to ask, to seek, and to knock. And yet he doesn't instruct us on what to ask, what to seek, or what what door to knock on. So what is he saying to us here this morning? Why the seemingly cryptic call to prayer? Some people take this as God giving us a blank check, as if we can hit him up for anything, and he'll just give it to us. This could be further from the truth. The context of this prayer is contained within the Sermon on the Mount, which teaches us that God is concerned with an inward righteousness, not just an outward show of piety. You know, the Greeks had a saying. He said, if you really want to ruin a person, grant him all his prayers. And aren't you glad God says no? I sure am. Ask and it will be given to you, Jesus says. So the first part is Jesus invites us to ask. So what do you ask for? Can I ask for a new car, a job, a husband, a wife? A Ferrari with a Blaupunk stereo system and 18-inch rims? Sorry, I digress. Uh, 
Can I ask that the bills that I'm struggling to pay will get paid? Can I ask for a relationship to be mended? Can I ask the Lord to take away a sinful desire? The answer is yes to all those things. You can pray for anything because you will receive an answer. It will be given to you. Now, it may not be the answer you're looking for, but your Heavenly Father knows what's best for you more than you know for yourself. So trust him with the answer. In fact, the Greek word here for ask is ateo, which means to beg in its present tense. This means Jesus invites you to ask him anything continually in a beseeching and a begging manner. Now, you may not get what you ask for, but you will receive an answer from your heavenly father who loves you and desires his perfect will for your life. And with the answer he gives you must receive it by faith. And that means if the answer is no or not yet, it means I can rejoice because my heavenly father has his best in mind for us. But the point is just ask because it's in the asking is where God will shape your heart to ask for his will and his desire for you. When you pray this way, then guess what? All of your prayers will be answered. So some of you might be sitting here thinking, Brett, I, I can't be asking God for this thing that I desire. It's so trivial. It's so minuscule. Well, when my kids were little, they would ask me for the craziest things. Dad, I want to go to Disney World right now. And at the time, obviously, we couldn't afford to take them to the kids to Disney World. But I just love the fact that they were so bold, so open to just asking me. And I was a father. I loved it. Even though I told them no for right now, we did eventually take them to Carowinds, which they absolutely loved. But in the process, it taught them to trust us, to be patient with us. And when they did, when they did get to Carowinds, boy, did they appreciate it. They appreciated it so much more. And Jesus invites you to just ask. And you might find that he will give you something better than what you thought or imagined. In fact, the one prayer that Jesus will answer every time is the prayer that when you ask for his presence. In fact, the parallel, this parallel passage in Luke 11 says that God gives the Holy Spirit to those who ask. How many of you here today ask God for many things in your life, but how often do you ask God for just himself? Just him, just his presence, just his company. You see, we get so caught up in life, we just miss being with Jesus. In Revelation 3.20, when Jesus addresses the church at Laodicea, he says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now, what's striking is, is that Jesus in this section of scripture is on the church. He's on the outside of the church knocking, wanting to come in. Let that be a lesson to us, brothers and sisters. Just as Jesus is always knocking on the door of your heart and he desires to fellowship with you. So when you ask him for anything, you can ask him for anything and learn to just ask for just him. Jesus says, seek and you will find. The idea of seeking is that of, of 
of taking action. You're looking for something. You're diligently on a trail hunt until it comes to an expected end. Jesus here is telling you that it's not enough just to ask. He wants you to seek him out, to discover him in new ways. Jesus says in the, in the famous verse that a lot of people know, Jeremiah 29, 11, he says, For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call me. You will call upon me and go and pray to me. I will listen to you and listen. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. The Bible says in Isaiah 55, 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. That means don't put this off. Seek the Lord. The Bible says in James 4, 8, Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Did you catch that? James is, is saying that when you seek God for just him, he'll draw near to you. But you have to move first. Let me ask you, there are things that you struggle with right now. There are things that you grapple with day in and day out that you can never seem to get relief from. But when was the last time you just sat down and searched the scriptures? When was the last time you just spent time seeking Jesus in prayer? Friend, let me tell you something. If you spend time in the morning looking at social media, YouTube videos, Twitter, doing everything but spending time and seeking Jesus, then why should you expect anything to change in your life? Why do you expect to have power uh, in your life to overcome the sin you struggle with when you don't draw near to Jesus? The truth is, he may not be a priority in your life. In other words, and I'm speaking to myself, by the way, in other words, you need to seek God as if you lost your most valuable possession and you'll do anything to get it back. And in a sense, there should be a desperation in the things of God. If you lost your child in the mall, you would scour that place. You would turn over every table. You would, you would tear apart that whole place. You would call in every police unit, first responder, bloodhound, friends, family. You would act in such a way that nothing else mattered. This is how God wants you to seek him, with desperation, with urgency, with passion, until he reveals his presence to you. Let me ask you, have you been seeking God? Have you been searching for him in your life, your business, your job, and your ministry? Seek his will, his desire, his face, and your reward will be that you will find him. Thirdly, Jesus says, knock, and it will be open to you. The idea of knocking carries with it a sense of being so annoying by your persistence that God will answer you. There's an insistence on receiving an answer from God, and you don't let up until you get one. Knocking implies that you have an attitude like that of a beggar looking to get bread to fill your hungry stomach. In other words, Beggars are so hungry, they throw all social graces out the window. And they'll try anything to get sustenance. It's an attitude that God wants us to have when we're knocking on heaven's door for an answer to our problems, our dilemma, our hardship, our difficulty, our need. 
Jesus says it this way in a parable he spoke. He says, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Don't bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up to give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. So the point of the parable is this is how Jesus wants us to pray with relentless knocking at his door until we receive something from him. In fact, my kids are so insistent for answers, they'll say, hey, dad, 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 dad. Well, most of the time it's mom, 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 mom. I literally one day sat in the kitchen and I began to count how many times each one said mom. And I think I counted up to like 40 or 50 times. But you see, don't think that God is annoyed with this type of persistence. He loves it because it develops a sense of dependence upon him for everything in your life. Verse 9 through 11 says, look at it with me. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? I mean, look at this rhetorical question Jesus asks. If your kid's hungry, wouldn't it be a cruel thing to hand him a rock or a snake? No father in their right mind would ever do something like that. A father worth his salt will give to his child whatever they need. And Jesus points out that we have a depraved, fallen nature. As Jesus says, if you then being evil, which is an indictment against our nature, we are born evil. Man is not good inherently despite the humanistic garbage that people are saying. No, hum humankind is not good from the get-go. We are evil and we need a savior. So right here, Jesus is calling us evil, but that makes the gospel sweeter, doesn't it? The fact that he loves us and redeemed us while we're his enemy says more about him, his grace and his mercy toward us. It makes Jesus that much sweeter. And if we have a fleshly, evil, rebellious nature against God, and we even know how to care for our own children, can you imagine our heavenly father who is perfect, cares for his kids, his provision is perfect. His care is otherworldly. His love is everlasting. And his care toward us is greater than our care toward or even our own children. And Jesus says here that God gives good things to those who ask. Whatever you receive from the hand of your father is always a good gift, even when it's no Think about that. Everything you receive from him has been thought through for all eternity and is good. Praise the Lord. So with that, there's a story in scripture which illustrates this passion, this persistence in prayer. 
that will illuminate what Jesus is saying in this passage that we're reading in the Sermon on the Mount. So in your Bibles over in Matthew 15, 21 through 28, by the way, do you know what the best commentary on the Bible is? It's the Bible. Don't ever forget that. John Calvin's Institutes are pretty good too. Um, Anyway. (laughs) In Matthew 15, beginning in verse 21, it says, And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now the area of Tyre is now modern-day Lebanon as we know it. Jesus' preaching ministry was soon coming to an end. He had established the gospel to all the Jewish territories, and now... He was doing something way out of the ordinary. He actually retreats with his disciples into this Gentile enemy territory, this Gentile land. And what he's doing is he's preparing his disciples for the final days of his life. He's about to face the cross, his ultimate mission, and he wants to spend some quality time just teaching privately and resting. So the days days ahead would be dark and treacherous, And he wants to make sure that the future leaders of his church are prepared for what's coming. And of course, the disciples were probably a little leery heading to Tyre, totally outside the comfort zone of any Jew. But Jesus is doing this to reorient their thinking on God's plan to save the Gentiles. Even after the resurrection, Peter had to be corrected in his his bigotry towards the Gentiles in Acts chapter 9 or Acts chapter 10 when he sees a sheet come before him he's trying to get them to think outside the box so the area of Tyre was known for its extensive occultic practices especially that that involved children the choice idol was the worship of the goddess Ashtarte or Ashtar it was a god who was worshipped through sexual practices so this god was leveraged with the god of Molech Babies were seen as inconveniences and treated as less than human. In fact, babies born from these sexual practices were placed in the hot, brazen arms of a human statue with a bull's head as a human as a sacrifice to that god. Sounds like abortion, doesn't it? So it's no wonder that this woman's daughter, that they are about to encounter a demon. Look at verse 22. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. So this Canaanite woman comes barging in and interrupts Jesus and his disciples unannounced and desperately seeks him for relief for her daughter. You can tell she's at her wits end. She She doesn't have any other options left. The indication is that she or someone around her was involved in some sort of occultic activity, some sort of satanic practice for this little girl to be indwelt by an evil spirit. Somehow, some way, she finds out that Jesus is in the area and she makes her way while she leaves her daughter behind to try to find relief for her. The indication is that she may she may be tried everything, has no other options. But you can see that Jesus may have been her last option. She was willing to go to great lengths to get to him. It's interesting that whenever we're in trouble, 
or seeking the Lord, that sometimes our, he's our last option instead of our first priority. We look for answers everywhere else instead of just stopping and crying out to God for answers. And I want you to notice the way this woman addresses Jesus as the son of David. Now, that was a Jewish term. She's not a Jew. She's a Gentile. Son of David refers back to 2 Samuel chapter 7 when God promised David that a descendant would sit on the throne of Israel. Why would she address Jesus in this way? This was a Messianic Jewish term to which she couldn't stand on. She was trying to stand on Jewish ground, but she can't do that. She's a Gentile. She doesn't have the right because she lacks the pedigree in this sense. The Canaanite woman searched for the most appropriate way to address Jesus, having heard the phrase son of David before, so she borrows it to approach him. Verse 23, but listen to this. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came out and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. Jesus didn't say a word to this woman's cry. Wait, what? This woman in her desperation, excuse me, cries out to Jesus and he doesn't even speak to her? Why? Was he being cruel? Was he being apathetic? Does he not care? Absolutely not. What he's doing is he's drawing out her faith. He doesn't want her to come to him on her terms, a messianic or Jewish term. He wants her to be real with him. He wants her to come to him on his terms. He wants a relationship with her. He's causing her to become more desperate than before so that her heart will land on him. And we don't know the condition of her heart, but we do know that whatever Jesus does is completely just. Think about Jesus' situation on the cross. God remained silent to the point where Jesus said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The gospel says that Jesus endured silence from his heavenly father, so that you and I could be spoken to by our loving Heavenly Father. And he knows what it's like to feel desperate, dark, and alone. And he went through it for you and for me so that you and I could have joy. And that's good news. Do you find that when you come to Jesus and ask him to solve a problem in your life, that oftentimes he remains silent? Do you know that he's working in that silence to bring your faith out of you? Some of you haven't received an answer to your prayer in quite some time. But isn't it good that he's working in you patience and greater faith and joy than you would have otherwise known? Jesus is going to solve your problem, but he will do it his way in his time. And oftentimes, he'll remain silent to produce fruit in your life. So, are you in a season where it's dark? You don't know which way is up? You can't seem to hear God's voice. This is where Jesus is doing his best work in your heart. He's drawing a faith out of you you've never known before so that you can experience a deeper joy, a deeper intimacy, a deeper satisfaction in Christ than ever before. It's through your desperate situation that you know him more profoundly. 
And once the crisis is over, oh, you'll gain something. Yes, you may, you'll probably gain the answer to your problem, but you know what you'll gain more of? Jesus himself, which is what he's after. So Jesus' silence was deafening, but she also faced the disciples' lack of compassion. Send this woman away. She's irritating us. Get, I mean, do you, I mean, what, what an indictment on the disciples. She was already dismissed for three reasons. Number one, she was a woman. Number two, she was a Gentile. And number three, she was a pagan. The deck was stacked against her. And the disciples had no tolerance for this type of person. Let me suggest to you that Jesus is also using this situation to expose the heart of his own disciples. To show them their own lack of compassion and love for others totally different from them. Brothers and sisters, let that be a lesson to us. God forbid that our attitudes and actions should drive people away from Jesus, even though they may be in a different social class, skin color, political affiliation, or religious group. God help us during this time if we, if where we alienate people from Christ in our community because of someone's background. We speak the truth in love, yes. We don't compromise on the scriptures, but we love people. We show love and compassion toward everyone, even when they may inconvenience us. This woman inconvenienced the disciples' time with the Lord, but Jesus didn't mind. Brothers and sisters, God will bring ministry to you when it's least convenient. God will interrupt your schedule like there's no tomorrow. And it will come at the most inopportune times. Embrace that. Because your time belongs to the Lord. Besides, God does his best work when you're not ready for it. So that he can get the glory. And why, oh why, does the Lord put us with people totally different from us? You think about the Apostle Paul, the rock star Jew, trained by Gamaliel, the rock star Hebrew Pharisee. If anybody knew the Jewish people, it was Paul the Apostle. Where does God send him? To the Gentiles. Nothing like him. Nothing like him. You see, it's to teach us. He wants. He puts us with people that are different from us to teach us how to love and serve the unlovable. To teach us his heart for people. So that person that you're around every day that just annoys the heck out of you. The Lord put that person in your life to train you how to love them, how to serve them. So we, we should be praying by your spirit, give me a heart for that person so I can love them as you love them to please you. So why does God remain silent in our lives whenever we ask him anything in prayer? I suggest three quick things. Number one, it keeps me dependent on him. It drives all self-reliance out of my life. Number two, it keeps me in the word. It keeps me in the word. When I don't hear God's voice, it forces me to anchor in his promises and rely on them for guidance. Number three, it keeps me humble and it keeps me useful. If I don't know what the heck I'm doing, 
and it gets my heart to a place that God can use me in spite of me, I am more effective for the kingdom of God. So watch what happens next in verse 24 through 26. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now understand this picture. Jesus is giving, understand the picture that Jesus is giving to this woman. He uses the analogy of children around a dinner table. The lost sheep of the house of Israel are the Jewish people. And they are first in line to receive the blessing of salvation and the kingdom of God that was prepared for them. It was, the Jews often called Gentiles dogs in that day. And it was a derogatory term. But Jesus uses the word euthid here in the, in the Greek, which is distinguished from a, a stray dog or a mangy dog. The word used here is an affectionate term, which means a pet or a little puppy. So he was treating her with dignity when he gives this analogy. But then look at her persistence. You really have to admire this woman. Now she's being real with Jesus. No more messianic titles. No more trying to appease. She just comes in desperation and she's just real. Lord, help me, she says. This is precisely what the Lord wants with us. Just come to him as you are. She's asking, she's seeking, and she's knocking, folks. And she's about to be rewarded for her persistence. Be real with him. Don't approach God in a roundabout way, a superficial way. He's your father. Come to the throne of grace boldly, as it says in Hebrews 4. Square your shoulders and walk right into the throne room of God, being real. There was an analogy of two frogs that fell into a tub of cream. One looked at the high sides of the tub, which were too difficult to crawl over, and said, one said, it is hopeless, so he resigned himself to death, relaxed, and sank to the bottom and died. But the other one determined to keep swimming as long as he could. Something might happen, he thought. So the frog kept kicking, it kept churning, and finally he found himself on a solid platform of butter and jumped to safety. The frog was persistent. So Jesus here responds to her as the son of David, the very title she addressed him as is first, and he, and he had come to offer the kingdom of God promised through David to his own people first. Salvation has an order, and that order is specific to the order of blessing to the world, to the Jew first, and then the Gentile. In fact, it says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also for the Greek. Every time Paul went into a Gentile territory, the first place he went is into a synagogue, preached the gospel. And when they rejected, he went to the Gentiles. So there's an order of things. And what Jesus is getting this woman to recognize is that there is an order of blessing. There's an order in God's kingdom that has to happen. So look at her state. Look at her answer in verse 27 and 28. Yes, Lord Yet even the puppies eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. This response is incredible. The Gentile woman saw herself in this picture. 
No, she was not the child. She was not a child in the family of Israel, eligible for the choicest morsels of food. But she saw herself as a household pet, a part of the family, but not on the same level. She understood that she was only eligible to receive the crumbs at that time that might fall from the master's table. She wasn't wanting to deprive Israel of God's blessings. She was simply asking that some of the blessings be extended to her in need. She knew she just needed a little bit for her daughter to be made well. She didn't need a whole loaf of faith, just a crumb, just a crumb. So basically she says, I hear you, Jesus. I understand you're working according to certain priorities. Yet even though the puppy dogs don't get the best bread, they still get the leftover crumbs that fall from the table. And you know what, Lord, that'll be enough. Can't you see in your mind's eye a smile break out on Jesus' face? This is what he was after all along. Not to destroy her, but to develop her. Her faith came to fruition here. She was not a a me-centered at this point. She was Jesus-centered, and that's what made Jesus excited. You see, I think when it comes to prayer, Jesus develops us to where it's not about your problem. It's about your faith. It's about realizing your position in Christ, that it's about him. In the Gospel of John chapter 2, we read a story about the wedding in the Cana of Galilee. A Jewish wedding in those days lasted about seven days. Can you imagine if we did weddings like that today? It's just a big party for seven days. If wine ran out at the party, it was a big faux pas. And it was seen as a social embarrassment. Jesus' mother Mary must have been a part of the planning committee for this bash because she comes to Jesus with this problem. Now keep in mind, Mary up to this point had a bad reputation with the religious elites. See John eight forty one. Uh, she had a bad reputation that she had. She gave birth to a child out of wedlock. So in her mind, and I'm going to use a little sanctified imagination, but I think it's based on the word. In her mind, here was an opportunity for her to be vindicated to everyone around her publicly, for her own son to solve her problem. She comes to Jesus and she says, they have no wine. You know how Jesus responds? Woman. Doesn't call her mom. Hey, mom. He says, woman. What does this concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. It's not my time to be revealed as the savior of the world. In other words, this is about the cross. This is about the gospel. And Mary, in turn, says, do whatever he tells. She tells the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. So she submits to him, and guess what? The miracle happens. He turns water into wine in secret where only the servants and his disciples know. Mary's request was not looking to solve her problem, but to glorify Jesus. And so it is the same with you and me. Our problem really isn't our problem. Our problem is our faith and our total submission to God and his will in our life. And so Jesus excitedly responds, Woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. This woman had great faith. And one thing rises above all others in the experience of this mother. She believed that Jesus could meet her need. 
And she would not let him go until he met her need. She was persistent. She asked, she sought, and she knocked. Her belief was so strong that she would not quit despite being met with silence, irritation, opposition, apparent rebuff, and being told that she was undeserving. There is no way to describe the scene except, Oh woman, great is thy faith. What about you? Are you persistent in your pursuit of Jesus? Do you feel like quitting? Let this woman's faith be an example to you. Keep pursuing the Lord. Keep asking. Keep seeking. Keep knocking. And it will be open to you. Imagine this also. She believed that Christ's power could overcome space and time. Her daughter was back at home. What enormous faith. But note a critical point. Her faith in Jesus' power, as great as it was, was not enough. Her faith was not what caused Jesus to answer her prayer. What caused Jesus to answer her prayer was her humility, her surrender, her persistence, her worship of him as Lord. Christ answers the prayer and exercises his power on behalf of those who surrender and humble themselves to him and worship him as Lord. Brothers and sisters, Jesus was persistent until his work on Calvary's cross was finished on your behalf. With that in mind, continue asking, continue seeking, and continue knocking, and you will receive more than an answer. You will receive Jesus himself. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you invite us to almost annoy you in a sense, to just come and just ask and seek and knock for your will, for, for, for your provision, even things that we desire, Lord, and that you will answer them according to your will. Thank you, Jesus, that you want us to uh, seek you so that you can shape us and mold us and to know you and the one whom he has sent. So that until that day when we reach heaven with you, that we will just keep asking and seeking and knocking and you will continue to reveal yourself to us in greater and greater ways. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.